Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week, we're joined by Goldie Taylor, veteran journalist, media strategist, and author. Today on Run Tell This, Trump and Biden's final face-off before Election Day. Moderator Kristen Welker shows us yet again that Black women get shit done. Biden faces questions about his 94 crime bill, and Trump claims that he's done more for Black people than anyone ever, except maybe Lincoln. Maybe Vaseline, too. We'll explain. Run Tell This starts now. I'd like to start talking about Kristen Welker. Kristen Welker is someone that I have known for a very long time. I have always respected her. I've always liked her. And I could not like and respect her more than I do right now. Kristen did the impossible. She managed to keep the president reasonably focused on the question at hand. She asked exceptional follow-up questions, repeatedly forcing him to address the issue that she wanted him to address. She was in command without being too aggressive. She was strong and she was fair and balanced and not in the Fox News way, but in the true journalistic way in that you did not feel like she had a dog in the fight. I really like Kristen. Uh, She's obviously a pro. I felt like this debate felt in control. I mean, part of a moder- I think part of the role of moderator is you're supposed to be driving the car. It doesn't mean you become the show, but it means you're supposed to be directing the conversation, setting the tone, uh, you know, keeping people in line. And this is the first of these debates that actually felt like that is what happened. Um, she was the best moderator that we had in this debate season. Certainly, the rules helped her in a way um, that, that, that the first moderator, you know, did not have it at his disposal. Um, and I want to say in a weird way, not that I'm, not that I'm at all giving the president credit for helping Kristen Welker, but he appeared to be slightly more disciplined than you would have expected. He was not, um, he, he stayed on his message to the extent that one could say Donald Trump is capable of staying on message, which is that, you know, he, he, he stayed true to himself. Um, he, he got in his attacks based on conspiracy theories. He talked about, you know, he fed his red meat to his base. Um, you know, he came as close to going full QAnon as you could without actually mentioning QAnon and, you know, Biden, he just kind of threw you know, some, some conspiracy spaghetti at the wall, but he wasn't the, he wasn't the interrupter that he had been in previous debates. He wasn't, he didn't, he didn't go off like a lunatic. He didn't try to be a pit bull. He didn't force Joe Biden into a, you know, be quiet, man. Would you shut up, man? Do you think that was because of the feedback he received? Because it was universally the first debate regarded as a disaster because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not one for taking much into consideration from his advisors if he doesn't like the advice. So I'm sure he got some feedback and he may have uh, he may have tried to discipline himself a little bit more. To me, he thinks that his that his best strategy is to be the attack dog. He thinks that he's been told this is not working for you. He knows he's down in the polls. And so he and and he knows that the rules now don't work in his favor because he won't be allowed to do the thing that he's that he's been doing 
to filibuster and to attack and, and to keep going after Biden the way, the way that he has. I will say this about Christian Welker, and I worked with her as well at NBC, that she is a phenomenal journalist and was a phenomenal moderator tonight. I think we don't give her or that mute button nearly enough credit that they played together and played together extraordinarily well. You know, if the button had a life, if the button was a, was a human being, the button's got to come home with an Emmy tonight too, right? Um, because I think it really did do its job. Yeah, what I felt when I was watching that um, was, you know, we all know that as black people, we have to be three times as good at everything. And I felt like we were seeing evidence of that exhibit A, that for Kristen Welker to be in the position that she's in at MSMSC and NBC and to have the success that she's had, she has had to be three times as good. Mute button aside, format changes aside, she asked follow-up questions, which is like reporting 101. She kept the candidates on topic, which is moderating 101. She was in control, which is moderating 101. So I was watching it like, see, this is why when you want a job done, you have to send a black woman to do it. <laughs> well, you know, even Donald Trump had to say, you know, you you're really good at this. And this is after a week of basically throwing her to the wolves, right? Of saying that, you know, she's a, 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 a Democrat, that her family's a bunch of liberals, you know, that she's hugely biased. She's been shouting questions at me. She's hugely unprofessional. And watching all of us, you know, from, from Jake Tapper to Joanne Reed and everybody sort of coming to the defense of Christian Welker. And then tonight, he turns around and says, Oh, no, you're really good at this. By the way, so far, I respect very much the way you're handling this, I have to say. By the way. But somebody should ask the question. You can ask He, he goes for a year. There will be we no have a, fracking. We, have, there we will do be have no a number of here. We have a number of topics. No, no, but that's a, big, we, that's a big and question. And we're going to get to We're going to get to It's the same thing topic. with socialized medicine. I have to respond. Vice President, your response, please. Well, and one of the things that stood out to me is there's been all this debate. We've had it, like this discussion of how you interact with these candidates and do you how much do you assert yourself? What I appreciate about Kristen, and after the Susan Page debate, there was some discussion of the complications and the layers of how might, what pressure might a woman feel in this position not to come across as too assertive. What I appreciate about Kristen was you heard her voice all the time. When they kept talking for too long, she told them to be quiet. When they didn't answer a question, she kept going, right? And she showed that you, you could, that, you know, again, she did the job of a moderator. I think very often we put people in these moderator positions and don't actually want them to moderate the debate, right? And what I appreciated about Kristen was her willingness to be aggressive, to be involved, to actually be guiding the conversation and so therefore it doesn't get too far off the rails. What I also appreciated was that she was thinking on her feet. So there were moments where she would go to cut someone off, but they would get the attack in and so she would grant 10 seconds, right? And so what ended up happening is for a the vast number of things, right? We can debate whether the responses were substantive or not later, right? But for the vast number of things that were raised, the other person got a direct chance to respond to it, which is what a debate is supposed to be. And that requires a confidence. You have to know you're actually in charge and know what's going on. And I just thought she did that as well as any solo moderator I think I've seen in years in terms of actually controlling what was going on. Yeah, so let's give Kristen her flowers. Um, so uh, let's talk about race, the questions on race. Um, I love, this is a shout out to Jelani Cobb on Twitter, who posed, posed the question, who did more for black people than Donald Trump? And uh, my favorite response is McDowell's Restaurant, <laughs> the white nuns in Sister Act, <laughs> the person that invented Vaseline. <laughs> I'm 
sorry. <laughs> and the lady from the lady from the blind side. Oh my god. Okay. I would I would I would I would counter your 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 person who invented Vaseline with your person who invented baby oil <laughs> and ver and various and sundry uh shea butter exporters well, so what, what i what i responded more with like people than the person who invented vaseline but the point is taken vaseline was cheaper than all that stuff you know this is the generational thing we didn't have shea butter stuff we couldn't afford lotion when we was coming up so we had vaseline because we couldn't afford all the other gish gab you talking about so <laughs> you know vaseline helped more vaseline helped multiple generations you know, shea butter is still on one, and we're gonna see how that works. Yeah, I think we still have the same jar of Vaseline from my childhood in the uh, in in the closet somewhere. Right, we, we ain't got the same forever. jar of Vaseline because my mother used to see. see I got it. I got a little bit of a bone to pick with Vaseline. My mother, we said, because I grew up in West. You know, I, I grew up. I grew up in Pittsburgh, right? Pittsburgh right. and Cleveland ain't too far from each other. It's hella cold up here in the wintertime, and my mother used to take these. Take this, that one jar of Vaseline, slather it all over your face on a cold day. And then we used to have these like robber masks that she would pull down and it would stick to your face. And now you can't, man. And so you get to school and now you got the lint from the mask on. I, I, I had a bad experience. But you were warm, Keith. Your mother kept warm. you warm. I couldn't feel shit. <laughs> and I don't know if it was the Vaseline, the mask or the embarrassment. But, got the blood flow. I couldn't feel a damn thing. You're right about that, but we but I'm I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Shea Butter his flowers because Vaseline did me did me bad from about the age of like I don't know three four to around eight nine when I could say nah I don't really need that but let's let's continue. We were All right, you're about recovering this. you're recovering from the trauma. So uh, the the question is about Donald Trump's response to the question on race. So Christian Welker asks both candidates to speak directly to Black America, and she was very clear about that, and she reiterated that when she transitioned from Biden's response to Donald Trump's response. Biden excels when he's speaking directly to voters. Compassion and connection is something that comes very natural to him and it's where he is at his strongest. And when he spoke about the issues facing black America, you knew that he gets it. He understands the talk that black parents have with their kids. He understands the fear of interactions with police. He understands the challenges in the community and he was able to speak directly to that. When she turns to Donald Trump on that question, his answer is, first of all, he did not speak to black America. He says, no one has done more for black America than Donald Trump. Nobody has done more for the black community than Donald Trump. And if you look with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, possible exception, but the exception of Abraham Lincoln, nobody has done what I've done. And I spoke to a black man today who was not certain about whether or not he was gonna vote for Joe Biden. He was either gonna vote for Biden or not vote at all. But the fact that we are still having these conversations less than two weeks out from the election to me is surprising. So what were your thoughts on um, uh, Trump's response on the issue of race? So I thought about, go ahead, Goldie. So it wasn't so, um, he said all of the things that we anticipated that he would say, right? You know, he, we anticipated that he would talk about uh, this prison reform legislation that he signed that I call, I call it, you know, the Van Jones bill, right? So he talks about this thing that, that he signed with that. 
Um, and then he talks about sort of meeting with HBCUs and, and giving them money, even though HBCUs are really still struggling today. Uh, so he didn't solve that problem, but yeah, he gave him some money, right? And, and obviously there was at least one program that Obama put forward that may have harmed HBCUs in the way that it structured uh, uh, parent uh, plus loans, right? Um, and so I got, you know, the sort of small piecemeal things that Trump leans on when he says, I've done more for black people since arguably Abraham Lincoln. He forgets all about Lyndon B. Johnson, but of course, you know, who cares about all those civil rights acts and, you know, of, of housing and such through the 60s. Um, I wasn't so much taken by that as what I was waiting for. And I've been waiting for Biden on this for most of the campaign cycle. I've been waiting for him to talk about the Central Park Five. You know, during the first debate when they were together, I was literally screaming it from my house, hit him there, hit him there. I was like, please say C is for color, right? And so I needed him to, for the first time, hit Donald Trump with his very own record, right? If he's going to begin to talk about what I've done for black people, I needed somebody to start talking about what Donald Trump has done to black people over the course of his career, before he ever thought about running for president, you know, before he ever, you know, sort of left Trump Tower for the first time and left uh, from his daddy's knee side. What has he done to black people over time? And, and there hasn't been anybody on a stage who has taken him directly to task on these things. We've heard about them in the news. We've read about them in the New York Times. We've read about them in the Washington Post and other places. We've not had an opposing candidate ever put Donald Trump's record of what he's done, not for black people, but to black people over the course of his, you know, his lifetime, you know, out on the public stage. I was glad to see it finally happen tonight. I had hoped that it would go even further than that because, you know, the record on this is, is broad, vast, and deep. Let's not start talking about families and fathers at KKK rallies, but, you know, we could have gone a whole lot further, but I think Joe Biden put out there just enough, you know, to kind of push him back. And so I had a, you know, I was having a good moment, you know, I think when that came out. So when I when I listened to this line of questioning, I did the same thing that you did, Mara, and I thought about the conversation that we had with uh, Brittany Cooper and with um, and with Reverend Sharpton the other day uh, with regard to black male voters. And I've been thinking about this. It's been sticking to my mind for a couple of days. One of the things that I think is happening in this discussion with black male voters is, is a I agree with Reverend Sharpton that, that when you look at the numbers um, the conversation about about black male voters and, and whether or not they're on the team here is a little bit skewed. The overwhelming majority of black male voters uh, did support Hillary Clinton with their with their votes the last time around. The number I actually um, heard somebody say I, it was um, Charlemagne the God said this said this uh, on his program either today or yesterday morning that the reality is black male voters supported. Hillary Clinton in greater numbers than any other than any other ethnic group of men in the last election. But when we talk about how black male voters voted in the last election, we talk about the 13 percent who voted for Donald Trump and not the overwhelming majority who voted in greater numbers than any other ethnic group of, of, of men. And I think that needs to be corrected. I think that we need to be that we need to be pointed because there is a there's a divisiveness that I believe is happening in terms of people talking about how black men vote and not a lot of investigation into why some of the 13%, not all of the 13%, because there's some of that 13% that's just off the reservation and not on code, if you if you want to put it that way, right? And they they over there and they're, and they're doing what it is that, that they do. 
Um, but then there's some of that 13 percent that were that was directly addressed in this debate. Donald Trump tried to attack Joe Biden for his record on the crime bill, uh, on the crime bill in, in, in 1994 and, and on uh, Rockefeller, what we call the Rockefeller sentencing laws uh, of the of the 1980s. And that's a legitimate issue. I'm not saying to agree or disagree with Donald Trump on his presentation and on his line of attack. Um, but clearly, he recognizes, and somebody, somebody on his team recognizes, that's a legitimate issue. I have personally, personally, I have numerous, uh, I have several uncles who have been a part of the criminal, been involved in the criminal justice system during this era of mass incarceration. Some of them under the disparate sentencing laws for drug possession. Okay, I had a classmate and neighbor in high school who spent 22 years in prison, having been convicted of an offense that he did not commit, uh, only to have the Innocence Project get involved in his case and help to free him when prosecutors knew that there was a lot wrong with the conviction. Black men are not off code and off the reservation when they express their concerns, our concerns about Joe Biden or anyone else voting the way he did on an issue that has affected us for now two plus generations and has destroyed lives and destroyed families and destroyed futures and destroyed potential. That's legitimate. The other thing I think about as we look at these exchanges, and I think that sometimes our election cycle news coverage can uh, oversimplify all of this, is that we, because what we do is we pretend as if there are two pots of voters, either you are a Trump voter or you are a Biden voter, when the reality is the largest pot in America is people who do not vote. And so very often we take something like the Trump attacks on Biden's record, in some cases which raise fair questions, but what I would also note is we've spent a lot of time talking about the crime bill. I think there are very few people out in America who are like, I really want to know what Biden has to say about this, right? We, these questions have been asked and answered, not to say that everyone's happy with any of the answers, but we know what his stance is on what should have happened and what should not have that we often take these things and we say, oh, well, is that going to turn someone from a Biden voter into a Trump voter? When the reality is, this was true in 2016, and I don't know that it got enough attention, and this remains true, right? Donald Trump's path to victory vis-a-vis -vis black voters is not winning black voters, it's keeping as many of them home as possible. It's taking the person who the reality is their politics align more with the Democratic Party or Joe Biden, which what we know statistically and based on polls is the vast majority of black Americans, even even those who have questions with Biden and all these other things, right? Their meat and potatoes politics align with Joe Biden's. We know that. Um, it's making that person go, all right, am I really going to leave the house and risk getting COVID for, for this guy who signed the crime bill? Am I going to wait in line? That line looks long. I'll go after dinner. And then that, that there's an active 
suppression effort. And now this is different than closing a poll place or you know voter ID laws. I don't mean that in a systemic way, right? It's a strict. It's a strategy, right? If someone is, if a group is unlikely to uh, to support you, the next best thing is to convince them not to support your opponent and just not vote at all, right? We saw this in sixteen. We saw this, in fact, as part of the sixteen Russian disinformation. Um, strategies where the Russian operatives were creating uh, Black Lives Matter Facebook pages to spread the super predator clip, right? The point was not that they were trying to convince young black people to vote for Donald Trump. They were trying to convince those young black people not to show up for Hillary Clinton. And so I think that that is likely as much of this conversation. The reality is the person who feels lukewarm about these candidates, right, is not necessarily someone who's running to go vote for them. It's someone who's going to stay home. And Donald Trump knows that the smaller percentage of the electorate that's black and the higher percentage that's white, it improves his chances. And I think that sometimes our conversation in all of this misses those realities, right? That there are, in fact, very few, who am I going to vote for Donald Trump, Joe Biden voters. There are many more people who lean in one direction and the decision is, do they vote or do they not vote? Yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And it speaks to, you know, the conversation that, that I referenced that I had today, because I've been thinking, like, who are these undecided voters? Like, to me, they're like unicorns, right? Do they really exist? Or are they just mythical creatures? Like, who at this point could still have trouble deciding between these two candidates? What I heard was what you said, Wes, which was like, I can't stand Donald Trump. I think his character is terrible. I think he's a terrible leader. But I'm still not sure about Joe Biden. So either I'm going to stay home or I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. And I'm still trying to decide between those two options. Donald Trump gets this, and he admitted as such. You know, there was a meeting with Donald Trump and Black pastors that included, you know, people like uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King III, uh, in a meeting in the White House, where he said, you know, <laughs> like people didn't turn out to vote. Guess what? Good, right? He was really excited that we didn't show up maybe in the numbers that we were expected to in 2016, and that he thought, that helped him to win the race. And, you know, I'm sure he'd like nothing better than to see that again, but he's really sort of splitting the poll here. So on the one hand, he's suppressing black vote by raising this specter. On the other hand, he's got to go out and convince the folks who he does need to turn out. Suburban women, women who are college educated, who think him a racist. He's got to convince them that he's the smaller racist in this thing that Joe Biden must be, you know, the big bad wolf here. But by the way, at the same time, I'm gonna keep your neighborhood safe because I'm gonna keep them I'm gonna keep them out of your communities. These very same people that I'm saying that Joe Biden tried to lock up, I don't want them in your neighborhood. And so he's kind of splitting the poll here. He doesn't do it artfully, you know. And, and, uh, and so so part of the problem that he's having is that the is that his idea and I think broadly maybe the conservative idea of what a suburban woman looks like is outdated. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up I grew up in a, in a, in a housing project in, in Pittsburgh. My fiance grew up in the Bronx. We live we live in a. Sub we live in a suburb, a, a, a fairly wealthy suburb now. OK, um, we we take walks with our baby and we and we look around at the Trump signs. And it and it makes her uncomfortable. She has a lot of friends who are in a similar position where they're they grew up in cities, but they've now gone to Ivy League schools and their moms and their attorneys and their you know, and they don't and they don't live in Philadelphia, they live in Cherry Hill, 
So Donald Trump has a very bad, very outdated idea of what suburbanites really look like and what they're really looking for in a candidate. And that is what really spells disaster for him in what, 12 days. I think it speaks to the dated mindset because the reality is, especially when you think about across the Midwest, my hometown of Cleveland, places like Pittsburgh, Goldie's hometown of St. Louis, right? Like you have places where uh, what was the, what were considered the suburbs are now black, right? That, that that he's really talking to people who live in the exurbs. They live 45, 50, an hour from a city. They're not in the suburbs, right? If, if you could touch the city of Cleveland, you live somewhere black. That's the way it worked, right? Or you or or on the west side, you live in in some very working class white ethnic, which is not who he's talking about here, right? He's 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 talking about the people who built the McMansions in Cleveland, out in Twinsburg, and out in, like he's not talking about anyone anywhere near the city, right? And so I think that that uh, it's now to be fair, I guess, to the president, right? A lot of those folks think of themselves as living in the suburbs. They're not trying to grapple with the idea that they ran away when the black people started coming out, right? And so there is, it does speak to some of the racialized politics of all of this, right? People who don't live anywhere, anything that could be reasonably called a suburb who consider themselves suburban voters because that is easier for them to digest than thinking about the fact that, no, as soon as we could, we got as far away from the city as possible. As soon as they built this freeway, we were out, right? And... But I, but I also think, you know, just to really briefly to uh, Goldie's point earlier, and a few of us have touched on it, for listeners or folks who haven't, um, you know, around this debate on the crime bill and, and the reality of that moment, um, I would definitely recommend James Foreman's Locking Up Our Own, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize uh, two years ago. Um, but it's a look at uh, the support that black Americans had for many of these draconian measures during the drug war years, because what we know is that black Americans were also the, mo the most victimized, right? Very often we were there um, arguing on behalf of some of this legislation that we still, uh, that, that now many of us have come around to see the consequences of, but also you get a black family together, very often the older, the older members in the family are still a little punitive about this stuff, right? And I, I remember I had a colleague, uh, a great reporter colleague at the Washington Post, this guy Peter Berman. He'd been a cops reporter in Baltimore, and now he's at the Post. But we together had, had uh, were covering the story when the Obama administration was first when they came into Baltimore, and then when they issued their findings, basically saying, "Look, this is completely unconstitutional policing, civil rights violations left and right." And he told me in the hallway after after we finished that story, he goes. Next Monday, there's a neighborhood community, there's the police community meeting in West Baltimore uh, that they have every third Monday of the month. I'm going to go and watch these police lieutenants who just had the feds tell them that they don't know what the Constitution is, get yelled at by some old black women about how they need to get these kids off the corners. And sure enough, <laughs> and, and I appreciate, you know, it, 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 I appreciated like the nuance and complexity of this, right? The reality is you, you do have people who are in places where they feel underserved by the police or they feel besieged by crime. And that often leads them to support policies that end up being overly punitive or um, disproportionately punitive towards their own sons and grandsons. And so it's a complicated and complex issue. The other thing I would say on that, and this isn't, a, this isn't actually applicable to Biden, who was very much a champion of the crime bill and the crime bill parts of the crime bill. But given that we spent half of our presidential debates debating 1994 politics, right, it is worth noting the crime bill was a massive omnibus bill. It included the Violence Against Women Act. It included the assault weapons ban. It included like this was a this wasn't a do you want to lock up the blacks or not bill. That was a huge part of it. Right. But it also had a ton of other things in the legislation itself, which is one of the reasons it carried such a massive majority when it was passed.
passed. But the reason why in, in every Republican in Congress, if they are alive today and were elected to Congress in that day, they would have voted for the crime bill, but for one thing, ban on assault weapons ban, assault weapons ban. It was an 11th hour ad that had been taken out and added back in and every Republican on the Hill said, we can't vote for it because you have now attacked Second Amendment rights because it had, it had widespread bipartisan support. But for those things, it was a cobbled together solution, which is you know something that was sort of endemic of what um, the Clintons did you know back in that day. I am glad that Biden recognizes his part. There are so many folks who won't put their mouths to it today and say, look, we were wrong. Here's what we need to do about it now. You're not going to hear Donald Trump say that he wouldn't have supported the crime bill. He just says that Biden did. He doesn't say that this, is, this isn't something that I would do. Why? Because he did support it in that day. And he said it didn't go far enough. Well, and we know what Donald Trump would have done. We know what Donald Trump would have done because, because again, to, to my point earlier and to, and to Wesley's point, uh, and, and also to your point, Cody, all you have to do is look back at what Donald Trump's record was predating the crime bill. Donald Trump was the, was the person in this, in this race who had been sued multiple times for, 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 for housing discrimination. Uh, Donald Trump was, was the person here who spent his own money to buy a full-page ad in the New York Times advocating for, for the death penalty for people who ultimately wound up exonerated for, for, for a crime, children who wound up exonerated for, for a particular crime. So we know what Donald Trump, Trump would have done. We also know that in this same debate, Donald Trump had the opportunity to acknowledge a particular policy flaw that, that I see as being, that I see as being, being very close to, it wasn't, wasn't legislation, but it was, it was a policy. It was very close to, uh, in terms of the, the impact that it had on a particular group. Uh, and that was the that was the policy of separating children at the border from their parents. And this came up during during the debate. Donald Trump had the opportunity to address it. He had the opportunity to say we made a mistake and we're, and, and we're correcting it. But he didn't. He doubled down on that. Well, he his did. response was so callous. It was we didn't build the cages. We just put them in them. And they said, look at these cages. President Trump built them. And then it was determined they were built. In 2014, that was him. Do you they have a plan cages. to reunite the kids? Yes, we're working families? on it very, we're, we're trying very hard. But a lot of these kids come out without the parents. They come over through cartels and through coyotes and through gangs. And this is where I actually thought Biden was very, very strong in saying, no, we are not going to lose sight of this issue. They were not brought here by coyotes or human traffickers. They were brought here by their parents. They were ripped out of their parents' arms. They were placed in cages. And now we have over 500 children who may never see their parents again. Who built the cages, let's, Joe? Let's talk about what who we're built talking the cages, about. Let's Joe. talk about what we're talking about. What happened? Parents were ripped. Their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 sets of those parents and those kids are alone. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. It's criminal. It's funny because when you go through life, you see yourself shifting as a voter, right? From when you're, you know, single, a college student, married, children. And this was the part that hit me in the heart and um, really almost brought me to tears is the thinking of a child separated from their parents to possibly never, ever see them again. And these are the kind of stories that, you know, I've read from survivors of the Holocaust, that they were with their parents one minute holding their hand, and then they turned around, their parent was gone, and they literally never saw them again. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of credit to the NBC team who broke that story. Um, I think that sometimes, especially in the Trump era, 
that there we jump from one fire to the next and sometimes we don't always do the after action on monday's fire because by thursday we got to deal with seven more of them um that you know i pre because i i think that as time passes and i think for a lot of folks there's been a realization of this in relative real time but i think as time passes we're going to further understand and further conceptualize the kind of historic level of horror we've enacted on this set of people that there is a set of children in the thousands who the United States government separated from their parents at these crucial young ages, traumatized those children. Some of those children end up with drug issues, end up suicidal, will never see their parents. Like This is a set of humans. When we think about the, the, the way that sets of black Americans were experimented on, when we think about people who were put in what we call internment camps, but every historian says actually is best understood as concentration camps to the Japanese Americans, right? That is a set of humans who the United States government has enacted a unique terror on and they've done it in our watch right i think that in a general rule all of us no matter our politics like to think everyone agrees that there are terrible things that have happened previously but we wouldn't let that happen like today there's no way we would let and look it we're all adults voting age adults people with relative platforms like our government stole a bunch of kids from their parents <laughs> and, and 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 that like and that has happened and i and i think that i don't know that we you know, journalistically, I think there's so much more to be probed there. I know some of the difficulty is that it's there's federal records and some of it's not even available. And the and fact matters, they don't even know. They lost some of the kids and some of the parents, which creates more problems. It's children. And so the, the records that are available look a little different. It's not like you can just get a list of everybody. But that said, I think there's so much. I mean, there are going to be books written about this set of children and their parents and what happened. They're going to be documentaries. They're going to be movies. We're going to understand this as a historic horror that we have lived through and been around for. And, and I think that, uh, and, and to be clear, I think that for all of the various moments of crisis within the Trump administration, if he believes his pathway to retain the presidency is through what he's considering suburban white women, this was one of those issues that pe people were not pleased. No one would, you know, that, that, wait a second, we're stealing p kids from their parents. All right, this is, this is crazy. Let's stop well, this. When you, when you speak of the kind of the historic nature of it, you know, this is something that I was literally thinking about this morning. I was out, out with walking my dog and, you know, you have those quiet moments in the morning um, where, you know, the world feels very quiet and sleepy and you just get some time to think. And I was thinking about these kids and I was literally thinking about a story I had read from this woman. Um, she's in her nineties. She's a survivor of Auschwitz. And she said she was with her family and she literally turned her back and she turned back around and they were all gone and she never saw them again. And I thought about the kids that are living that reality right now, that they are never going to see their families again. And that this was intentional. This was not a bureaucratic byproduct. This was not collateral damage. Oops. This was a deterrent. This was a policy that was put in place to send a message to people coming to this country that they should not come and they definitely should not come with their children. And what hit me in the heart is what am I going to say when my kids ask me in 20, 30 years, what, what were you guys doing? You knew this was happening. It's not like you found out after the fact, what did you do? And it's the same question that you might ask someone who was living in Nazi Germany, but not actively a part of the Nazi party, right? What did you do? And what can you do? It just feels so powerless other than vote, other than what we're doing now, which is express our outrage. What can we do? And I, I think that, 
And one of the ways I, I also think about this, and I, I developed this thinking a bit covering a lot of police shootings, right? But what I used to say is, because right, I did all this, we did all this data work to try to quantify and see how often and analyze. And and we'd often get into these debates about, well, is this really too many? And what, and, and what I would often say is if the United States government kills one person who they should not kill, right? And the police of the government, that's a major scandal. I don't got to find a hundred unarmed black guys who all got shot in the back when they were on it. If there is one case that's a maybe, right? The, the tie goes to the, the, the person, not to the government, right? And that's a major scandal, right? If there is one child whose life is ruined by the action of, of this policy, that is a major scandal. And we know it's going to be far more than one. We know it's already been, right? We're t I'm thinking about long-term effects. We already know that there are children who in this moment, their lives, families who in this moment, their lives have been forever changed, ruined, destroyed, right? And, and because of the actions of our government. And I think that that is something that sometimes it's hard when it becomes not five. What is 500 kids? And well, is that only like a quarter of the ones who they took? And what, we, we end up in these statistics games, right? The United States of America kidnapped 500 children and, never go, and they can't find their parents. That's a, Each one of those is a major scandal. It's 500 scandals stacked on top of each other. I think the farther we get away from these separations, the deeper the, the, the shame of this policy and the ap actual application of it is going to look. Uh, history is not going to look well on you know, the greatest world power in the world kidnapping children. Yeah. Um, I want to transition to COVID because we are, it's easy to forget this and it's amazing how quickly human beings adapt. We are in the midst of the biggest mass casualty event in our lifetimes and it's not over. And when Joe Biden says winter is coming, you know, a dark winter is coming. It sounds like an episode from the Game of Thrones. He's not wrong. We are seeing this resurgence all over the country. We're seeing it all over the world. And now we're entering into winter where people will be indoors more and maybe layered with the flu season. This is not good. And we are right in the middle of this fight. So when you talk about COVID and how it was addressed at the debate, here's what I found really interesting. I feel like Donald Trump is a person who says the subtext out loud. He says the thing that he's not supposed to say, the thing you're only supposed to think, he says it out loud. And he said what I think he's been trying to say for since the beginning of this crisis, he finally said it out loud, which is, we just have to learn to live with it. We're learning to live with it. We have no choice. We can't lock ourselves up in a basement. And he wasn't speaking to the 7 million people who have contracted COVID. He wasn't speaking to the families of the 200,000 plus who have died. He was speaking to the 300 million Americans who are suffering economically. And it's hard for me to say these words, they kind of choke in my throat a little bit when they come out, but this is actually a case where I tend to agree more with the president. Because living in New York, it feels like the cure is worse than the disease. My city that I love like a person, literally my best friend since I was 21 years old, is dying. And it's dying because of the cure. And I have to wonder if there isn't some better middle ground. And I wonder if I'm thinking that, how many potential voters are thinking that as well? I think, I think you're right that the voters are thinking that. I just happen to work around a bunch of scientists every day who are studying exactly this issue. And I gotta be honest with you, the cure is not worse. I gotta be honest with you that if, you know, you can't solve this economy without solving this virus. And 
unfortunately, you're going to lose one or the other. You got to take your pick that you're going to lose many more jobs and, and have a destabilized economy for, you know, a good long while, or you're going to lose hundreds of thousands more American lives. You know, it, 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 you get one or the other. This is not the one where you can kind of, you know, get your cake and eat it too. That unless we as a country decide that we're going to wear masks, that we're going to wash our hands, we're going to wash our distance, that we're going to get involved in the science, because you've got people out there who don't want to participate in the trials, right? That, you know, I don't trust this stuff. I don't want to be in the trials. Black people saying, you know what, Tuskegee, Henry and Lax, all these other things, I don't want to be involved. If we don't get involved in science and do all of these other things around, you know, taking, you know, personal precaution for ourselves and for our families, not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of more lives. And so we are looking at, in reality, you know, what Vice President Biden said, a long and very dark winter. And anybody, whether you choose their lives or their wrecked economies, anybody who tells you otherwise is just flat out lying. That we've got more people who are on the front lines who will be infected. We've got more people who are delivering food and, and you know, serving uh, at restaurants. More people who are selling cars or not selling cars or selling furniture or, or trying to mortgage homes. You have more people who will not be able to do their jobs because we as a society can't decide for ourselves that taking care of ourselves and taking care of our neighbors is much better than this pie in the sky idea of what we think liberty is. For me, liberty is the right to be alive, right? Liberty for me, you know, is the right to stay away or keep away from a very deadly virus. But I have to look at, you look at him, he's 74 years old and he's obese. It seemed like he recovered overnight. We, Wes, previous episode, I asked you about your experience with COVID. You, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were like, well, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, I think that's 100% true. And I think, I mean, the Trump caveat is he also has the best medical care in the entire world. You know, Donald Trump getting, Donald Trump getting COVID is not one of our grandparents getting COVID. And that's not for a moment. Yeah, he, <laughs> not, nah, he broke every medical, he broke every medical not, protocol. You know, but, but I get, but Mar, I appreciate the point you're saying, but I think what's hard with this, right, is even the, I, th I think about this when, when I got sick um, and for folks who didn't hear the earlier episode, right, you know, a bunch of my colleagues and I all got COVID at the very beginning, March, first week of March, I think it was March 3rd or March 4th, all got exposed. A bunch of people got sick. Some of my colleagues were in the hospital with pretty serious illness. A bunch of the rest of us had the lighter symptoms, right? But even now, as I think back to this, right, and this was, to be clear, very, very early on, we didn't know a ton about, the states wasn't taking COVID very seriously. This was a thing that was happening in China and in Italy, and there was like a nursing home in California. We didn't really know what was going on. No one was wearing a mask anywhere, right? This, was, this, was, this wasn't when the CDC was saying, you don't need a mask. It was before the CDC had even addressed the question, right? We were in the normal world. I think back now, knowing I had it, and my girlfriend at the time was, uh, it was in my girlfriend was at the time. I don't, I don't want to get in trouble on that. Like, <laughs> yeah, you will like, definitely get in trouble when we get at that the time wrong. living in New York. And, <laughs> and I was, uh, I was uh, waiting on that one. I was waiting. I, I caught I, it. I, 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 caught, I was waiting on I that caught one. it. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead, yeah. <laughs> at the time, she was living in New York, and among her roommates was a school teacher. Well, I unquestionably exposed him, which means I unquestionably exposed all those children, which means I exposed their families and their grandparents and their that they that what is what is so difficult about this is 
And I think it's hard to think through that all the way unless you've had it or it's happened in your family that way, right? That it's not about, this is, you know, our individual liberties stop where our liberty starts impacting other people. And the reality is if you get sick with this, or even if you don't get sick, if you are asymptomatic, you don't even know you had it, you can then be the carrier walking around. But the thing I will say, so setting that aside, there is something to be said for, for a lot of folks who've taken these rules relatively seriously from the beginning, right? All right, not going out, not seeing people, who's coming over, right, no one's coming over. That's kind of, this kind I mean, of stuff. And that's been me. Right, there is a real fatigue that sets in. And first of all, part of that fatigue is that a bunch of other people aren't following these rules. So we're on exactly. Instagram, we're like, wait, you guys are in the club for a TI album party? Exactly, like, you know, like, and he's like, like, nobody's wearing masks. And you're like, what, but, my, but my, my, my like best friend from college can't come over for wine? Like what's the, like, you know, like right. there's a difficulty <laughs> where it feels like there's a bunch of people that like sacrificed everything and then the other people like just like screwed it all up. And I think that that fatigue is real. Like, in a real way where it's like man i want to go out like i want to go do a thing i want to see a movie i want to like you know I, I think that's real i think that's really difficult and i think one of the key tests if joe biden is elected for example is going to be like there's still gonna have to be a relative restart there's a lot of policies that should have been in place to contain this from jump there are a lot of things we might have to ask of the people and you're asking a lot of people to basically say all right let's pretend as if the, this pandemic started today <laughs> we need another six months of you doing x y and z we need um, I don't want to hold you guys too much longer. Before we go, serious question. Who is AOC plus three? The squad. Because it sounds like a really dope girl group. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it sounds so like a rom-com or something, right? It's, it's, right? it's like a it's like a meet cute where like AOC is trying to figure out who she's going to date, but there's three of them. You know, like it's like. But have yeah. they been referred to that way before? Or am I just missed it? The right wing people have a little yeah. bit, right? It's because it's because the, like, the squad wasn't working or it was too amorphous. It's, it's, it's just... You know, it's like, no, actually, the leader of the squad is this one. You all hate her the most for all types of yes. mixture of reasons. And so yes. it's, it's making her the lightning rod, making picking, picking, picking the titular head, the one that the one that your base hates the most and sees as most representative of all the things that you hate and lumping everybody behind that person. Well, I'm looking forward to their album, their debut album. It's going to be fire. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.